I always thought the word kippa meant cap. Kippa, cap. It turns out the word kippa means dome. And the word yarmulke is a generic term in both Ukrainian and Polish for skullcap. In Aramaic, yarmulke means in fear of the king, Yair Malka. But I also read that that's a coincidence. How is that a coincidence? And thus begins the mystery of the kippa. My kippa is a black knit kippa, but it's got some technology to it. See, I've got these cool clips hidden inside. But a knit kippa can have all sorts of stuff, like Jewish iconography, like a four-leaf clover for all the Irish Jews we know. And uh, they can be made of cloth. And a black velvet kippa generally belong to the Haredim, or the Hasidim, or the Yeshivish people. But it's not as simple as that, because some black velvet kippas have six panels, some have four, that means something, I have no idea what. Some have a rim and some do not. The question is, why? What's it all about? Why do we wear a kippa? Do we have to wear the kippa all the time? The answer that I was always given is there's an idea that God's above and we're below, and we should have a kippa on our head as a sign of respect and as a reminder that God's above and God's below. Let's go to the rabbis. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, the Rambam. The Rambam says that you have to wear a kippah while you're praying, when you're speaking to God, and when you're making blessings. And other than that, it's highly suggested that you wear a kippah. The Taz says you have to wear a kippah all the time as a way to distinguish yourselves from non-Jews. The great 18th century Sephardic posik, Rabbi Chaim Yitzhak David Arazi, the cheetah. That's his nickname. I didn't make it up. The cheetah. The cheetah says you have to wear a kippah all the time as a midot hasidut, as a sign of piety. And then in the Shulchan Aruch, also written by a Sephardic rabbi, Yosef Karo, Yosef Karo says that a man should not walk more than four amos without covering his head. And yet in the Gemara, there's more confusion because there's an idea that an a non-married man might not have to wear a kippah. There's a story in Tractate Kedushin where Rabbi Huna sees Rabbi Humuna without a kippah on his head, and Rabbi Humuna explains, I'm not yet married. And Rabbi Huna scolds him and says, if that's the case, make sure never to present yourself to me until you are married. <laughs> like, if you ask most people who wear a kippah why they wear a kippah, they'll tell you they've been wearing a kippah their whole lives. But that's not my story. I grew up totally secular. I'm what they call balchuva. I chose my level of observance as an adult. I'm not so comfortable wearing my kippah. It's a choice. It's a statement. So I came up with a compromise. My compromise was I'd wear my kippah while I was praying, and I'd wear it for the entirety of Shabbat, from the beginning of Shabbat to the end of Shabbat. But the moment Havdalah came, I would take my kippah off. I remember I was in New York one, one few years ago, and. Havdalah was over, and I took my kippah off, started rolling it up. My friend Zoya saw me, and she said, ah, Shabbos is over, and there goes the kippah. And I blushed a little, because I knew it was funky. Why was I in such a rush to get the kippah off my head? Well, all that changed with a single phone call. I got a call from the Dr. Phil show asking me to be an expert guest in their show. I'm a director, but I've made the bulk of my career directing TV commercials. They were doing a week called, Is My Child a Star? So they wanted a commercial director to come and work with the kids. They called me. I said yes. And the night before we were taping, I thought to myself, why did they pick me? There are a lot of directors more famous than me. I don't specialize in kids. And I had this thought that maybe I was chosen for an opportunity. 
Why don't I wear my kippah? Now, when I think about a guy wearing a kippah, I think about a rabbi, I think about a guy in a black suit and a white shirt, at least a guy with a beard. I don't think about me, a guy wearing contemporary clothes directing commercials, and I thought that would be a kiddush Hashem, a blessing of God's name. So the next day, I put on my kippah, and I go to Paramount Studio, and I'm a nervous wreck. Look, I'm wearing a neon sign on my head that says Jew. I'm not comfortable with this. What are people going to think? What are people going to say? Of course, nobody says anything. That's actually not true. The security guard says, Shabbat Shalom, brother. It was Tuesday. <laughs> it was great. Dr. Phil liked me. He invited me to come back every day for the rest of the week. I wore my kippah every day that week. All good. Someone pulled me inside and said, I'm Jewish too. Another person said, I like Cholent. <laughs> that was it. Until Thursday night, I get a call from my friend Scott. Scott calls me and says, dude, I just saw the Dr. Phil show. What did you do? What do you mean? Well, of course, Scott pointed out the obvious to me. You can't go on internationally syndicated television wearing your kippah one day, and the next day go without wearing your kippah. Now I was stuck. I had to wear my kippah, and I was completely distraught about it. And then again, I had to ask myself, why is it such a big deal? Sure, as the cheetah says, it is a sign of piety, and being pious all the time can be a burden. I mean, who wants to be pious all the time, right? But it's more than that. My grandparents were refugees from Romania during World War II. My mother's great-grandparents were refugees from Russia in the late 19th century. They all came to this country with the same idea. Be modern, be American, leave the old country behind, and the keep is part of the old country. But it's much more than that. You see, they were refugees because they were Jewish, because of the kippah. It made sense that they didn't want to wear a kippah. But that's not me. I was born in this country. I have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression in my DNA. Why should I be afraid, right? Is there anything to be afraid of? When I started wearing my kippah, I got some weird reactions. Why is it weird? I couldn't articulate it then. But now I can. It was weird because it was too Jewish. And that means somewhere inside, we were afraid of being judged, being afraid of being shut out. And then there's my friend Catherine. I met my friend Catherine many years ago at the beginning of my career, at the beginning of my observance. She knew nothing of Jews and Judaism, and I remember explaining to her that I was bidding two jobs at the same time for the first time in my career. It was a big deal for me. However, that week was Shavuos, and I was going to have to shut my phone off for two days in the middle of the week, and it would almost certainly mean that I would lose both of those jobs. She looked at me and said, well, do whatever Jewish stuff you have to do, but..." Don't lose the jobs. That's insane. Ridiculous. I didn't know what to say because I kind of agreed with her. Over the years, Catherine became much more acclimated to Jews. She had Jewish friends for the first time in her life. She dated an Israeli. She came with me to Simcha's Torah services one year. She even said offhandedly that she liked Judaism and was considering converting, but she didn't. She moved back to Vienna, and I lost touch with her. A few years later, she got in touch and said she would be in Los Angeles and wanted to know if we got, would like to meet up for a drink. We started talking, it was like old times, and then she looks at me and she says, are you still doing all that Jewish stuff? 
And I was cool and coy, and I said, well, I have my good days and my bad days. And then she goes, yeah, I figured. What does that mean? I said, actually, I'm more observant now than I've ever been. And that's when she saw it. Ah, I see you're wearing your little hat there. What's that about? My heart stopped. I was shocked. I didn't know what to say. And when I didn't speak, boom, she was off again about Israel and Palestinians and Jews. It was over. A decade of friendship, gone in an instant. I left that night very disturbed, and I went to bed disturbed. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I bolted upright. I had a moment of clarity that I've almost never had in my life. It, it was like an out-of-body experience. I came to understand with truly complete clarity that I was at least partially, if not totally, responsible for her anti-Semitic outbreak. You see, when she asked me a question, she created an opportunity, a vessel, a clea. And when I didn't show up, when I didn't fill it, bad things happened. The worst sin that the Jews commit in the Torah is the sin of the golden calf. God has just redeemed them from, e uh, from Egypt with 10 miraculous plagues. He splits the, uh, the Red Sea and takes them miraculously to, to Mount Sinai. They hear the voice of God. God says, I am the Lord your God. Put no other gods before me. And what do they do? They take all their gold, they make an idol, and they bow to it. Worst sin in the Torah. But not the worst punishment. The worst punishment happened two weeks ago, Parsha Shalach. It's the sin of the spies, of the Meraglim. The Jews have been wandering the desert for a year. They make it right to the edge of the Holy Land, and instead of entering, they send in the spies. Let's find out if this is truly a great land. And of course, the spies come back and say, it's an amazing land, a land filled with milk and honey, but we can't go there. The people who live there are too great. Remember. This is after they just defeated Egypt, the world's first and greatest superpower. They've had a bunch of battles along the way that miraculously they won, even when they were attacked from behind. And now the spies come back and says, they are like giants, and we are like grasshoppers to them. And, and the Jews decide not to enter. And for that sin, their punishment is to wander the desert for 40 years so that an entire generation dies and doesn't get to, to enter the land of Israel. Hands down, the worst punishment in the Torah. What was their sin? Their sin was making themselves small. When Catherine asked me about my observance, I made myself small. When she asked me about my keeper, I made myself tiny. While I was preparing for this talk, I had the thought for the first time, the only reason she got in touch with me was to ask me about my Judaism, to ask me about my belief in God, to ask me about the meaning in life. And when I didn't show up, she got angry. 
It went south. See, now I wear my kippah for exactly that opportunity. The opportunity when that security guard says, Shabbat Shalom, brother, it's the opportunity to greet him with warmth. And when I walked my dog on Sunday with my kippah and a woman, a new neighbor came running out and said, I'm Jewish too. It was my opportunity to invite her to my Shabbat table. And when I was sitting on the plane and someone talked to me about God because I'm wearing my kippah, it was my opportunity to engage. And when an anti-Semite looks at me with hatred, it's my opportunity to stand tall, to be confident, to be a mensch. Because the Taz is right. This is a way to distinguish ourselves. As much as we try to be like other nations, as much as we might assimilate, we are not. We are our own nation. I think that's the lesson here. We've got to stand up and be ourselves with strength and with confidence. And of course, the cheat is right. It's a sign of piety, but it's more than a sign of piety. It's a mechanism of piety because when I'm wearing my kippah, I have to be better. I have to be a mensch. I have to be the best man I can be. My kippah is the source of fear. But I'm going to face my fear. And I will not be small. And that's why I wear my kippah. Thanks.